So what I'm going to do here this morning is look at Revelation chapter 13. I want to take the time to read the entirety of the chapter. It's a long chapter, 18 verses, but I think it'll serve our purposes in the long run if we take the proper foundation. Revelation chapter 13, verse 1, and he says, And I saw a beast rising out of the sea, with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns, and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard, its feet were like the feet of a, like that of a bear. Its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it, the dragon, the devil, gave his power, his throne, and great authority. One of its heads seems to have a mortal wound, but its mortal, mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshiped the dragon, for he had given authority to the beast. And they worshiped this beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words. And it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them, and authority was given to it over every tribe and people and language and nation. And all who dwell on the earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone's to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword must he be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and the faith of the saints. And then I saw another beast, verse 11, rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast, whose mortal wound was healed. It performs great signs, and even fire comes down from heaven to earth in front of the people. And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell upon the earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast, so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. Also, it causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark, that is, the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. God, I pray that as we read these things, we would not be horrified or terrified or fearful but Lord, you tell us these things ahead of time so that we can know, so that actually it can contribute to our security. I pray, God, that we would take great grace and patience and faith in you. Heal our hearts, Lord. Forgive our sins. I pray because we're in a conflict, unseen, in the world unseen, that you would bind the work of the enemy of our souls. You would cast him out, and you would make this a place, a safe place, a sacred place, set apart to you and you would heal hearts and speak to the hearts and minds of these men and women. All glory goes to you. You are the teacher. We pray for this grace in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Well, as I said last time, we closed the last passage in Revelation chapter 12, not addressing the 1,260 days that the dragon chases the woman into the wilderness. And I think and anticipate that in chapter 13, we're going to be able to address that in, in greater detail. But I wanted to rehearse for us some of the similarities that are taking place between this dragon and the beast. And if you look at the picture that's given to us here in chapter 13, number one, I would draw that both of the beast and the dragon are described as having great power and great authority. The beast is given power and authority by the dragon, and thus indicating to us, as we talked about before, that the beast is actually the physical manifestation of the dragon upon the earth. You see, the dragon, who chapter 12 tells us is the devil, he doesn't come out and say, you know, I'm speaking to people today. Hey, baby, I'm there. I've heard a person say, you know, the devil came to me and told me. It's like, I don't think so. That um, something I mean, you know, they're coming to take me away moment in your life. You know, you need, to, you need to go see the doctor. But the reality is that he doesn't come and just talk with people, typically speaking. He doesn't have communication. But what he does do in the scripture primarily, I would agree, not exclusively, but primarily, he, he raises up men. And he appeals to their sensual appetites. In James chapter 3, he talks about the sensual wisdom that is demonic. That is the way the devil gets into people as he gets them to lean upon their own understanding. And when they begin to give themselves to lean upon their own understanding, he deceives mankind like a carrot in front of a horse. He leads men down a path. That's why the Bible says in Proverbs 3, lean not on your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge the Lord. The Christian comes in and says, listen, I feel like doing this. I think I should go there. I think I should do this. But, Lord, not my will, thy will be done. The prayer of Christ in Gethsemane. Christ in Gethsemane is stressed to, to preserve his life. And yet he, not us, but he had to go to the cross, literally, and in that cross was the place of greater redemption for man. And so life doesn't always present to us nice little fairy tale options in the immediate moment. But you can know that all things will work together for the good to those who love God and are the called according to his purpose. So what the devil does is trick and deceive according to sensual appetites, taste, touch, see, smell, and hear, and leads man down a path. And unfortunately, some people that are unwittingly the vehicle of his use because they've given themselves over to their sensual desires, the Bible talks about those who have been trapped by the devil. And the Bible says in the book of the pastoral epistles, he talks about the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. So that there's actually people the Bible speaks about that are taken captive by the devil to do what the devil wants to do. And they may think to themselves, well, the Lord told me to do this or what have you, but it's inconsistent with the fruit of the Spirit. It's inconsistent with the, the nature and the standard of, of the personality of God. And yet, they're driven by these sensual powers. So the Antichrist, or the beast, as he's called here in this Revelation chapter 13, is one who is the physical manifestation of the satanic power that's behind him upon the earth. Whoops, went back too far. But secondly, I'd say both the beast and the dragon are portrayed as being fierce and fearsome. In the picture, I include a depiction, an artist's depiction, of what these beasts perhaps looks like. And the dragon is there on the left side of the screen. But the beast, as you can see in the passage, has ten horns, seven heads, and it's to them that have the power to make war against the saints and to overcome them. They make war against the believers in the Lord himself, and they, he's actually able, according to Revelation, to overcome and conquer them which is a wild dynamic which we'll explore in detail as we go further down in future weeks. 
The dragon, on the other hand, as you can see in the pictures, is described as a great red dragon with seven heads, ten horns. Notice the similarities between them. We talked about this in previous weeks. It's said to have power to sweep a third of the stars out of the sky, which we found were the angels themselves. How great is Satan's deception? It's so great that he can even deceive the wisdom of the demons. And he sweeps out a third of the stars. He flings them to the earth. This is the the rebellion, you could say. Jesus said, I saw Satan fall like lightning. And he deceives a third of the angelic host who have no chance of redemption. People say, oh my gosh, Satan, he has a third of the stars. Listen, first of all, Satan is the counterpart of Michael the archangel at best. Not the counterpart of God. This is not Zoroastrianism. Number two, yes, he does have a third of the angels, but guess what? That means we have (laughs) two-thirds. I'll go with the numbers. I'll go with the math. (laughs) And so we find thirdly, in this comparison and contrast, both the beast and the dragon are associated with blasphemy and deception. The beast is said to have a mouth that speaks great things. In fact, in Daniel, in chapter 7, when it talks about this beast, and I don't have time to explain Daniel 7, you can talk to me afterwards, he said, I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, Daniel 7, 8, a little one before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. There's ten horns, remember, on Revelation. Ten kingdoms in the last days that the Antichrist is going to work with. And behold, in this horns were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking great things. It's what the late Chuck Missler used to call him, the big mouth. That he's always blaspheming, he's always speaking out, and he finds himself inherently speaking against God himself. Remember, God comes to Paul the Apostle in Acts chapter 8, and he said, Saul, Saul, before his name was changed to Paul, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And he's like, what the heck? I'm not, this is the Ben IV translation expanded. What the heck? I'm not persecuting you, God. I'm just persecuting those Christians. He goes, you don't seem to understand something. When you're persecuting my servants, you're persecuting me. That's my body. And so they said, I love you, God. That's that's the basis of the hypocrisy in 2 Corinthians 11 behind uh, taking communion, or 1 Corinthians 11, behind taking communion. It's like you're saying, I love the body of Christ. Here we are preparing to take communion here, and yet you hate the body of Christ. How can you have that? doesn't mean sinless perfection. But how in the world can you say you love Jesus, but Saul, you're killing my servants? And that what you find is this beast is actually the active agent. He's attacking the servants of God. He's slandering them. That's where we get the word Satan or devil, the accuser. He's slandering them. He's attacking them. In the name of God, most likely. As you see, this is all given in a religious context. And so what you see is that this great dragon, this great dragon uh, was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceives the whole world. He was cast out of the earth and his angels were cast out with him. And so the dragon's described as the ancient serpent who deceives mankind and he's the accuser of the brethren. But I also note that both the beast and the dragon are opposed to God and his people. The beast is given authority to make war against the saints, as I've already said, to overcome them. And it's said to blaspheme God in his name. The dragon is also opposed, likewise, to God and his people, the devil. And he seeks to destroy them to promote his own agenda. And so as we saw in the previous studies, the seven heads 
are seven kingdoms. This beast has seven heads. The dragon has seven heads. The dragon is the spiritual entity. The physical manifestation is the beast or the antichrist. There's a a coordination between these two. And the seven heads were seven kingdoms, according to Revelation 17. Five were, one is, one is yet to come. And so if you look at the slides, there's a depiction I've drawn upon the screen. The beast is the large circle. There's seven heads coming off of that beast. And what we found, go back to Revelation 17, based upon our studies in Revelation 12, the beginning of those passages, we find that there was five kingdoms that were. All of them were in relationship to Israel. Five of them were. What were the five biblical nations in the scriptures themselves that were hostile to Israel? I wrote them on the screen there. It's Egypt. It's Assyria, it's Babylon, it's Medo-Persia, it's Greece. And what you find is these five kingdoms were, at the time of John, when he was writing this message, five of them were, but at the time of John, how many people know he wrote during the time of Nero, which was a Roman governor, or emperor, one is, according to Revelation 17, and one is yet to come. So you see this whole beast here, within the passage is exemplified as somebody that has existed over time. Five were, one is, one is yet to come. In other words, it's a spirit manifesting itself through men at various times in human history to accomplish his ultimate goal. Each man playing the role according to his own lust, not aware of a grand conspiracy, but being manipulated like a carrot in front of the horse, as I already said, being manipulated along a path, delving into the sensual appetites and unwittingly becoming the tool of a demonic power. That's what the Bible teaches. And so that's why the Bible would go on to say that, uh, yeah, the slide's up there. It would go on to say that the beast or the Antichrist spans time. We see this in 1 John chapter 2. He says the Antichrist is here. It's, already, it's coming, but it's already here. Well, how in the world can it be com- coming, but it's already here? Because it's a spirit. And thirdly, I'd say the ten horns or ten kingdoms that will be under the power of the seventh head, as you can see within my picture, the seventh head, as we see in Daniel chapter 7 again. Let me see if I can turn there quickly. Mm-hmm. Daniel 7, verse 7, After I saw in the night vision, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful, exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured, this is the Roman Empire, it devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it. It had ten horns. And likewise, in chapter 13, it speaks about the ten horns. The ten horns are not distributed evenly across the map of heads. This is picture language, right? But they're all concentrated on the last head, on the seventh head, or the fourth in Daniel's reference because the starting point was at a different time. Nonetheless, you have to reference our previous study. But notice what we would notice also here, and just making observations on the text, that there's two beasts that are given to us. We read here in Revelation in chapter 13. The first beast represents a political power that arises from the sea, which symbolizes chaos and instability. This is what the sea represents, chaos and instability. But the sea also represents the nations. Remember the Bible says, why do the nations rage? It's almost like a synonymous terms. The nations are raging because the goyim, apart from God, are in hell and chaos. The unrighteous are like the ocean. It's it's never settled. 
But uh, the righteous are, uh, to borrow the words of Mark, like a leaf on a pond. You know, it's like that's, that's essentially what the righteous are. There's peace. He senses peace. And we get disrupted when we lose sight of who he is. That happens very easily to me and to you, I imagine. So this beast has ten horns, seven heads, which are various kingdoms or rulers that it represents. The beast is given power and authority from the dragon, and the dragon is Satan himself. But the second beast represents a religious power. And he, the beast, rises from the ocean, but he rises from the earth. The beast has two horns like a lamb, but speaks like a dragon, indicating, of course, that it appears innocent and benevolent, but actually promotes the lies and the deceptions of Satan. The Bible teaches that this last day's order is going to be coming from somebody that looks like the lamb. Ring any bells in anyone's ears? John's gospel opens by saying, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of this world. Who is he speaking about? Jesus. And it says the false prophet in the last days is going to look like the lamb. In other words, you would look at him and say, I see Jesus. Makes you, kind of rings the bell in the mind of Matthew 24. That in the last days, many people will come in my name saying, I am the Christ. Something's going to happen in the last days that people that are given to sensual wisdom, which our entire culture has trained us, television has trained us in sensual wisdom. If you see it, you think it, you feel it, believe it, it's true. And it doesn't mean that Christianity is not tangible to those realities. It means there's factors going into your mind that are outside of taste, touch, see, smell in here. We learn not to lean upon our own understanding, but the sensual wisdom would look at this one and say, man, this, is, this has to be God because he has power. This false teacher, he has power, he has authority. It has to be God. It says that he calls fire down from heaven. Isn't it interesting? Jesus said, a wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign and no sign will be given it except for the sign of Jonah. And as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the well, so must the son of man be three days and three nights in the belly of the earth. What did we talk about last week? The resurrection. What did Jesus say? You want a sign? I'll give you a sign. I rose from the dead. I rose from the, I conquered the grave. But this one is going to come upon the scene. It doesn't mean all miracles are evil. I'm not saying that. I've seen miracles. But if that's the basis of your faith, we've got some issues. And the reality is that's given to us here, the, the, the mortal wound um, that's, that's taking place. So the second beast this religious power comes upon the earth. But thirdly, I would say the, for the first beast is worshipped by many people. And it's given authority over all the nations and the peoples. And it suggests that the political power it represents will have great influence and authority over the earth in the last days. Almost like a one world order type of thing. But the second beast in Revelation 13, it promotes the worship of the first beast. And it performs miraculous signs in order to deceive the people. And I think this indicates that the religious power it represents will play a significant role, likewise, in supporting and promoting the political power of the first beast. Number five, those who don't worship the first beast to receive the mark are persecuted and killed. Isn't what the text says? And I think this suggests that there will be a great pressure for people to conform to the dominant political and religious powers, and those who resist will face severe consequences. Now, I'm not saying, like, forcing people to 
you know, get an injection against their will is the mark of the beast, but I can t- guarantee you this, it's the same spirit. It's the same spirit. Because the pressures, you, do, you better take this, you better receive this mark. It's the same spirit. Somebody wants to, to I'm not, and I'm, again, I'm not saying that is the fulfillment of this. What I'm saying, though, is the same spirit, the pressure that's going to be placed upon people is going to be immense. You know, you kind of got to know who you are. You got to figure out who you are before the day of trial comes, right? And if you're not confident who you are and who your God is, if you try to figure that out in the context of trial, you're, not, you're going to have some shaky knees. Having a day of peace, get to know the Lord. Get to know who he is. Spend time with him. You only get to know people by spending time with him and reading his word. Because I can have some crazy thoughts, so I need the Bible to balance those out. But number six, the number of the first beast is 666, which has been the subject, I think, of a lot of speculation and interpretation. There's things that we'll discover in this. The root word of it is stizo, which means to stick or to prick. So the Bible says, in the last days, you're going to be stuck or pricked in the back of your right hand or your forehead. And without this, you can't buy or sell anything. And people have speculated about microchips, you know, and, and surveillance technology and all these types of things. That's something we'll explore at another time. But make no mistake about it. The Bible explicitly says you're going to be stuck in the back of the right hand or the forehead with something without this sticking. I think, think of this in the ancient world. They're going, what in the heck? And without this, you're not going to be able to have commerce upon the earth. You say, well, I'm going to barter. Well, you better get good at it because that's all you're going to be able to do <laughs> if we're here. I don't think we're here, but that's another story. In Revelation 13, he goes on to say, one of its heads seems to have a mortal wound. Remember, this thing has seven heads. One of them has a mortal wound, and it was healed. And the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And so what in the world is this mortal wound that comes upon the beast? And again, this is a survey given a broad picture of everything going on. Well, what does it mean? Well, there's some possibilities. Number one, the mortal wound represents the death and the resurrection of a particular ruler or kingdom. Remember, the seven heads are seven kings and seven kingdoms, according to Revelation 17. So this Antichrist that spans time, one of its heads is wounded mortally, looks like it's dead, but it didn't die, but it comes back to life. And the first speculation is that, well, it represents the death and resurrection of a particular kingdom, like the Roman kingdom, seemed like it was dead 2,000 years ago, and now all of a sudden it comes back to life. Or a guy, people speculate, is assassinated and he comes back to life. But the theory suggests that the, that, that the wound represents a historical event that has happened in the past and was seen as a sign of the ruler's or kingdom's power and legitimacy. He comes back to life, that's proof he's of God, is their thinking. And some scholars point to the passages in the Old Testament describing a similar time where God raises up Israel. It's a bunch of dead, dry bones. He, he brings them back to life in Ezekiel 37. But a second interpretation is that the mortal wound represents a symbolic death and resurrection of the beast itself. And this theory suggests that the wound represents a major setback or a defeat of the political power represented by the beast, which is then able to recover and reassert its authority. Some scholars point out to the language that itself, which speaks of the wound being as though it had been slain. It appeared it was dead, but it actually wasn't. 
and then it was healed. Thirdly, the mortal wound represents a physical injury or an illness suffered by a particular ruler or leader. And this theory suggests that the wound represents a specific historical event that happened to a particular ruler or leader who was associated with the political power represented by the beast. There actually was an assassination attempt. Maybe it was like a JFK comes back to life. You're like, whoa, type of thing. Or it's that whatever leader was on the scene, he's going to have an assassination attempt, and then he's come back to life. But he's mortally wounded in the head, and then he comes back to life. A fourth interpretation is that the mortal wound represents a spiritual or moral injury to the beast or its authority, and this theory suggests that the wound represents a loss of credibility and legitimacy for the political power represented by the beast, which is to recover through various means. And some scholars go to various Old Testament passages, talking about the wounding of Israel, for instance, for breaking the covenant of God, and uh, kind of like this is a counterfeit of all of that. Who knows? But regardless of what's going on, what you have going on in Revelation chapter 13 is a false trinity, a faux trinity. You know, we talk about Christianity, we have the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, right? Uh, you know, you do the, kind of Catholics do this thing, you know, the Father, Father Son, Holy Spirit. <laughs> and Satan is the counterfeiter. He comes upon the scene, and Satan plays the role of the father. He has a son. It's called the Antichrist, which means in the place of Christ, not against Christ, though he is against Christ. It means in the place of Christ. Jesus said many false Christs are going to come. And then the Holy Spirit is represented by the false prophet. So you have the false prophet testifying to the false Messiah. The Holy Spirit in the doctrine of the Bible is going to testify to Jesus. And here you have the Father glorifying the Son. The Son only glorifies the Father, and the Holy Spirit in the true Trinity only talks about Jesus. He's a gentleman. He doesn't talk about himself. If the Holy Spirit's really there, people won't be saying, Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit. Because if the Holy Spirit's there, you'll be, you'll be saying, Jesus, Jesus. He's a gentleman. He doesn't talk about himself. And so you have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, but then you have this counterfeit going on where Satan himself, with his false Christ, with his false, false prophet, in John chapter 11 and verse 4, Jesus said, when he heard this, Jesus said, the sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's Son may be glorified through it. The glory of the Son and the glory of the Father intricately tied together. In John chapter 17, Jesus said, I've brought you glory on earth, speaking to the Father, by finishing the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. And what's taking place in chapter 13 is a, a reconfiguring of that reality to deceive mankind. And they'll do it with signs and wonders performed by the false prophet. But in the same regard, notice how, how I think the world marvels, as it says in the passage. They're going to marvel at the beast as a result of his wound being healed he was dead or appeared to be dead and came back to life. And not only did he come back to life, he was so powerful and he has power, throne and authority. He was so influential. So they're marveling at the beast. His life becomes a reason for them to wonder about how did you get so powerful when they investigate how he got so powerful. The false prophet saying, I'll tell you how he got powerful. He's worshiping the true God of this earth, Satan. And Jesus actually called him the God of this world. 
And people hungry for power saying, I'll sell my soul for rock and roll. I'll sell my soul to this thing. Yes, I want that power, that renown, that authority. So they give themselves over to it for the immediate pleasure of temporal success upon planet Earth. It's very dangerous to think and to live a life in a way that believes that this is all there is. But the nature of the worship is for the power that was given to the beast. As a seven, Revelation 13, verse 4 again, and they worshiped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshiped the beast, saying, who's like the beast? Who can fight against him? And so I think this begs then some points to consider as we're laying a foundation. Number one, Revelation 13, 4 suggests that people will worship the beast because they're amazed by the power it has been given by the dragon, which represents Satan. Number two, this reflects a pattern that can be seen throughout human history. People have always been willing to worship and to follow those who promise them power, whether it's political, economic, or spiritual. That's human nature. I want power. What is money? It's condensed power. You know, it lets you do what you want, say what you want, be where you want. Number three, today I think we can see this dynamic playing out in various ways, such as in the political and the religion. We kind of have things, you know, might makes right. Pragmatism is our God. It works, so it must be God. Well, yeah, the Bible says there's doctrines of demons. Don't want to focus on that too much, but it says that. Just because something works doesn't mean it's from God. And yet, this people and this time are going to be setting themselves up because they're going to follow pragmatism. Number four, in politics, point to consider here, in politics, leaders are often promised to use their power to bring about change and improve people's lives, right? And this can lead to a cult of personality where people become enamored with the leader and are willing to overlook or to justify their flaws and mistakes. One thing I'm glad about our current resident, I mean president, is that nobody on this earth would say that's the Antichrist. <laughs> no one. No one on this earth. So we're pretty sure that this is the first president in a long time. Of course, he's the most popular president <clears throat> in the history of our country. <clears throat> Sorry, I, the acid reflux is coming up. It's just something in my throat. I apologize for being so unprofessional. But number five, in extreme cases, this can be, lead to authoritarianism and the suppression of dissenting vo voices and votes. Number six, in religion, some people are drawn to charismatic leaders who promise to give them access to divine power and enlightenment, signs and wonders. Yeah, I believe in miracles, but is that what you're drawing people with? Be careful. Be careful. A wicked and evil generation looks for signs. No sign's going to be given to it. I want a miracle. Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, and they say, let's kill him. <laughs> really? People believe what they want to believe, not because they see it. You give them evidence. It doesn't matter. The Spirit of God is drawing them, or he is not. They're responding, or they're not. We play our role. But people become enamored with this, and they, it can lead to the formation of cults or other religious groups that are marked by willingness to submit to a leader's authority and follow their teachings, even if what they're saying is bizarre, unbiblical, and strange to outsiders. That is outside of the church. 
You know, the standard isn't in leadership isn't that people speak well of you. It's that what, what does the non-Christian say about you? He must have a good reputation with outsiders. But number seven, the pursuit of power can also lead people to engage in various forms of dark magic. Why do people get involved in the occult? I want power. Like a crack of the whip, I snap attack front to back in this thing called rap. I've got the power. Yes, I'm a product of the 90s. But it leads to occult practices in the hope of gaining some kind of a supernatural power and insight. Number eight of nine, money can also be seen as a condensed form of power. I've discussed this. As it gives people the ability to influence others and to control the environment. I know people that are very wealthy. And um, every time their children are rebellious, they dangle money in front of them. And the children snap to attention. (laughs) It's human nature. But last, I'd say the lure of power can be a dangerous and destructive force. You know, it's like in The Lord of the Rings, I would only do good with the ring of power. (laughs) Everyone thinks they would. You know, one of you, I'm not going to say who, oh boy, you know who you are. You're saying, I just want to win the lottery. You told me this. You're a friend of mine, so don't be too offended. I just want to win the lottery. I said, you don't want to win the lottery. I said, every single person that has ever won the lottery has destroyed themselves. I've yet to find a person, just like the Bible says, an inheritance quickly gained brings destruction. I am convinced I would be the exception to the rule. I'm convinced of it. (laughs) But it has yet to happen in my purview. And I've known three different peoples that have actually won the lottery. You say, you should become my friend. (laughs) But it can be destructive. And so what I see in verse 4, again, they worship the dragon. He had given them authority to the beast. They worship the beast, saying, who is like the beast and who can fight against it? The passage also assumes certain conditions that are given upon the earth. And I'm going to tell you ahead of time here that these conditions are something that I might spend the next six weeks or so going through and focusing. I haven't determined whether or not I want to do this or not. But I might take each one of these six points and expand them over the next six weeks. So pray for me. But the passage, as I said, assumes these conditions upon the earth. Number one, it assumes a centralized global government, right? In order for the events to happen that are described here, it would require some kind of centralized government or a system of authority that has the power to control people and the nations. This could be achieved through politics, economic, technological means, but the result would be a system of total control It would be antithetical to individuals' freedom and autonomy. A little hint on something. Peter Drucker's The Three Stools, Three-Legged Stool. What did he say? Money, the the, the economy, the government, and religion. He said the three have to come together. What does Revelation say? Money, the government, and religion comes together to create the conditions for a worldwide government which is necessary. Do I think Drucker's is somehow part of a conspiracy or was? No. He's just rightly analyzing the necessary elements in order for this to be achieved. And here we are on the, on the, the, the cusp of this actually taking place within our world. Ecumenicalism is necessary. Radical forms of religion, even Islam, must be disvalidated. Islam is going to attack Israel. Israel is going to respond, wipe them out according to the scripture. They're going to build their temple on that dome of the rock, 
And based upon the doctrine of Dar al-Islam, it's going to repudiate. You see, when 9-11 happened, that was like proof that Islam is real. But when Islam gets destroyed, radical Islam, it'll be proof that it's false. And you'll see this mass exodus from Islam when that event happens. It has to happen. But it also has to happen to fundamental Christianity. It's almost like something like, a, I don't know, like... The true Christians are caught up, snatched up, people throw your hands up, uh, into the air to be with the Lord forever. (laughs) Something happens to remove true believers. But there has to be a centralized government. Number two, a global economic integration. The world economy has to be highly integrated and interdependent with a few dominant players controlling most of the world's resources and wealth in order for this to happen. And this could be a creation, to create a situation where people are highly dependent upon the global economy for their survival, making them vulnerable to manipulation and control of those who control the world economy. This is why you hate small businesses. Small businesses make you dependent upon the community. Therefore, you have to have, I don't know, a large company come in to small communities or something like that to make sure everybody shops there. And I don't want to speak bad upon these places because I shop there, but (laughs) I'm telling you, this is where the world is going. A global economic integration. Number three, technological advancement. The events described in Revelation 13 also assume significant technological advancement. Remember this, this beast, this statue that he creates, begins to talk? Without this mark, you can't buy or sell? It assumes technological advancement, which didn't exist in the ancient world, interesting, including the ability to monitor and control people's behaviors and thoughts through sophisticated means of surveillance and manipulation. Number four, a universal lust for power. The passage also suggests that people will be willing to worship and follow the beast because of the power it has been given by the dragon, right? And this suggests a universal lust for power. People have always wanted for power, but people have restrained themselves. What we're living in the world today is that the people that are CEOs of the major corporations are people that will literally do anything in order to get power. The lie, cheat, and steal on levels you do not even know exist. They'll whack people, not with a slap. I mean, whack, like, Danny boy's got a message for you. You know, it's, they're going to whack people to get advanced because of a universal lust for power. Read uh, for, is it 1 Timothy 4 or 2 Timothy 4, where he describes what it will be like in the last days. 2 Timothy. Okay, I trust you. But this suggests a universal lust for power and control that transcends cultural and natural boundaries, national boundaries. It's also possible that this could be driven by a sense of desperation and fear. As people seek security and protection in a chaotic world, the Bible says in the last days people are going to be crying peace and security. Which are interesting because we thought they were necessarily coming together, but maybe they're sacrificing one for the other. Peace, security. Okay, for my peace, I'll give up my security. Number five. A decline in moral values. 
The passage we just read also suggests that the beast will be characterized by evil and blasphemy, right? And the people will be willing to follow it despite their wickedness, blaspheming the name of God, speaking evil against him. It's like, yeah, but pragmatism is my God. So, I mean, I don't agree with what he's saying, but, you know, might as well jump on the train of pleasure. I want to be wealthy, healthy, and wise. And I think this implies a decline in moral values and a weakening of the traditional religious and ethical systems. And that leads to number six. Finally, it speaks about the passage. The passage suggests that the beast will deceive people into believing that it has power to provide ultimate salvation and security. And this could involve a false religion or spiritual systems that promise to meet people's deepest needs but ultimately lead them astray. Now, is there any, any fulfillment of these six points? And as I said, I may get into greater detail in the next six weeks and, and speak about each one of these in the context of Revelation 13 and the whole of Scripture and our economy. We'll see. See how the week goes. <laughs> but again, think about the global governance initiatives. There have actually been a number of recent initiatives claimed at creating more centralized global governance structures, such as the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. Look at the picture if you can see it or look it up online and you'll find some interesting things in that picture. Or what about the World Economic Forum's Great Reset Initiative? It was just two years ago, right here, I'm saying, this is happening, it's a great reset. And you know what the response was nationally? That's conspiracy theory. And then they literally come out and say, yeah, that's what we're doing. <laughs> it's the great reset. And they're literally resetting everything with a one world currency. I mean, it's just like. <clears throat> or what about the European Union's effort to deepen integration and centralize decision making? We are the world. We are the children. We are the ones. And they present it in such beauty. And yet the Lord looked at man trying to do this in Genesis in chapter 11. He said, let's all come together. And God says, man, if they do this, they will become so wicked. There's no telling what they'll do. I better make sure that the countries remain independent. And he confused their language. God created the different languages to confuse people, to keep them from fulfilling, we are the children. Let's buy each other a Coke. <laughs> Those older people know exactly what I'm talking about. Remember that old commercial? <laughs> Let's buy each other a Coke. But secondly, the wealth concentration and the inequality. The global economy is increasingly dominated by a small number of very large corporations. Look at what BlackRock just part of it that owns. Apple, Microsoft, Amazon, Facebook, J.P. Morgan, Chase & Company, Alpha. You say, well, you know, uh, Berkshire Hathaway owns so many things, but who owns Berkshire Hathaway? <laughs> You're talking about all of this wealth is being funneled to a very few people. Or Vanguard, Microsoft, Apple, also they have major shareholder. Amazon, Alphabet, Facebook, Berkshire. Johnson & Johnson, J.P. Morgan, Visa, United Health Group, a lot of the same things both these groups control. And it's localized in a very small handful, the entire 
world's economy, a very small group of individuals, while many people around the world are struggling just to make ends meet. In an article uh, entitled Bilderberg, World's Most Powerful Flock to Annual Secret Meeting, you can look it up online. In the article it says, chaired by the head of French insurance giant AXA Group, Henri de Castries, who also happens to be a count, this year's attendees include CEOs of multinationals, including Shell, Deutsche Bank, Airbus, and Siemens. Politicians such as former U.S. Secretary of State Henry Kissinger, German Finance Minister Wolfgang Schaubli, and former head of the European Commission, Jose Manuel Barroso. It also includes economists such as International Monetary Fund's Christine Lagarde, Lagarde and World Economic Forum Chairman Klaus Schwab. And lastly, royalty such as the King of the Netherlands. This was back in 2016. And what you find is that the Bilderbergs, they have these, quote, secret meetings, which aren't completely secret. But why is it a bad thing that you have this kind of centralization? Why is it such a bad thing that you have all these people? Again, look at BlackRock. Adding to that list, the pharmaceuticals, Pfizer, Merck, AstraZeneca, uh, AstraZeneca Moderna, Johnson & Johnson. And where did our shots come from? The defense companies. Who owns them? Huh. How about the mainstream media? Well, I like Fox News. Wait, you know what? It only goes so far, doesn't it? They know how to toe the line. CNN, MSNBC, Time Warner. In fact, you see in the picture, these three firms own corporate America. They own it. Interesting times, huh? Interesting times. Thirdly, I'd say big data and surveillance. Advances in technology have made it possible to collect and analyze vast amounts of data about people's behavior and preferences. And I came back into the United States here recently. It was Orwellian. Even when you're getting on the plane, the different airlines, Delta or whatever, take a picture of you now. And you know what's really cool? Is you don't have to have interviews anymore. Because they just literally, you go up with your passport, you touch it, they scan your face, now you're in the system, guess what? And, and Delta's saying, kindly saying, well, if you prefer not to have this happen, go ahead and tell us and we will not do it. And I'm like, whatever, it's going to happen anyways. I, I draw the line at the mark of the beast, but whatever, dude. <laughs> I'm like, whatever. They already know every single website you ever, now, does somebody in a little room checking up on you? Nuh-uh. But now they have the technology that they can store it so that at any given time they want to check up on you, they can isolate their search on you, and they'll know every single thing you have ever done. You say, well, I use secure websites. Yeah, right. <laughs> and they can destroy you that fast. Now, is somebody doing that? No. I'm just saying the possibility is there. The technology is there. They analyze you when you go to the store, what you like, what ads pop up on your thing. That's old school now, but there's more advanced discoveries of your person. Artificial intelligence has created a whole new world of scary. But governments and corporations are still using and collecting this data to monitor people in various ways. 
from target advertising to social credit systems. And again, why is this a bad thing? Number one, the identity and target of dissenters. If a government comes into being like this, the government could use the data to identify individuals who oppose their regime and target them for surveillance, harassment, and even arrest. When you see the political leaders going after another political leaders, we're in a banana republic. And when you look at the trumped up charges, pun intended, you're saying, this is ridiculous. Yet it doesn't matter. Number two, why is this a bad thing? It restricts access, access to information. The government could use the data to restrict access to information that is critical of their regime, thereby controlling the narrative and limiting dissent. Number three, monitoring behavior. And I don't want to create a bunch of freaks here. I hope we don't look at this, oh, yeah, that's right. I'm going to get my tuna and go up in the mountains with my shotgun, and I'm going to survive it out. And it's like, you're weird. <laughs> don't, don't do that. <laughs> Stay integrated. That's not the answer. The answer is, Lord Jesus, you're my defense. But number three, monitoring behavior. The government could use the data to monitor citizens' behavior, including their online activity and physical movements. And this could be used to enforce strict control over citizens. You know, start thinking things like carbon credits, or something like this, which is just complete baloney. And the reality is you could begin to intimidate people exercising control over those people. Number four, you could suppress free speech. The government could use the data to suppress free speech by monitoring social media, Twitter, and other online platforms, and cracking down on individuals who express dissenting views. Right now, it's a cultural phenomenon called cancel culture. But because we're in a democracy, which we're not a democracy, we're supposed to be a republic. A democracy means that you can get um, all the people can decide they want your stuff. So we point a gun at you and take it. You know, we're going to eat you. You know, we're the butchers, you're the lambs, we take it from you. The sheep's going, but I vote against it. doesn't matter. We're the majority. But a republic says we're going to put guns in the arms of the sheep, <laughs> and uh, he gets a choice just as much as yours. <laughs> it's a different system. But you can begin to suppress free speech. The government could use the data to keep monitoring all these platforms and shut you down. Number five, and last, manipulate elections. The government could use the data to manipulate elections by targeting voters with propaganda, spreading false information, and even hacking into voting systems to ensure the preferred candidate wins. And of course, this has never happened. It wouldn't happen because we're in America. But it promises to meet people's deepest needs, but ultimately, it leads them astray. Authoritarianism. So as opposed to the populist movement, which decentralizes the global powers, notice this, I hear this voice in the news saying, it's the populist movement that is actually creating this dynamic. No, the populist movement, whether it's France or America, is decentralizing the world government and saying, people, go back to your countries. <laughs> we get along better if we have checks and balances. But authoritarianism, in the true sense, is against the populist movement, which decentralizes their power. 
And there's a push for a one-world order. In 2020, an article of Project Syndicate, George Soros wrote about the need for a global response to the COVID-19 pandemic. Epoch Times, by the way, has been coming out with articles saying basically people died from the shot. <laughs> Can I verify that? Nope. I'm just saying what they said. But he's arguing that the crisis has been exposed and the weaknesses of national governments and highlighted the need for global governance. So while Soros didn't explicitly call for a one world order, he did propose several measures that could be taken to strengthen global governance and cooperation, including the establishment of a, quote, global health authority and the creation of a global minimum tax. Interesting. If money is actually created by pushing a button anymore, why do you need to tax the people? It's about power. It's about control. And so Henry Kissinger, likewise, in 2020, and I can't believe the guy's still alive. So he's, I think he's going on 400 right now. <laughs> Jabba. <laughs> and, uh, oh, Wookiee. But nonetheless, I shouldn't make fun. But I did. But Henry Kissinger, likewise, in 2020, wrote an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal in which he discussed the need for a global realignment after the aftermath of COVID-19 pandemic. So you create the problem, and then you offer a solution to the problem you created that's worse than the problem itself. Yeah, sounds brilliant to me. Number five, moral relativism, the declining religious affiliation. You know, many people around the world are becoming more skeptical of traditional religious and moral systems, and rightly so. There's a lot wrong with them. There's a lot wrong. But the problem is the answer isn't to delegitimize the message, at least that they're promoting. And this decentralization is seeking to find meaning and purpose in a rapidly changing world. And this leads to the decline in religious affiliation and more relativistic approaches to ethics and morality. And people just slowly go down the path of immorality. Revelation 13 assumes this moral relativism as this one who is blaspheming and cursing and even attacking the true servants of God. People join in and do evil things to others in order to become promoters of this system that gives them temporary success. Number six, last. In the last days, this context of Revelation 13 assumes the spiritual searching and the New Age beliefs that are prevalent. And despite the decline in traditional religion that's going on, there's been a rise in spiritual searchings and interests in alternative spiritual practices and beliefs. I talked about this last week at the end of our study, didn't I? About holistic where the New Age offers this idea that will give you holistic health, body, mind, and spirit. But there's only one religion, a true religion, that has all three. So whereas the New Age may give you physical benefits, look, yoga, you know, twist yourself in a pretzel, look. And it may give you some sort of spiritual, it's devoid of the mental, it's nonsense. But there's only one that passes the test of body, mind, and spirit. So although they, they say, oh, you know, we're holistic, I'm stealing their term. No, Christianity is holistic. 
Because it will save your body. It will save your soul spiritually. And it will also come under the scrutiny of your mind. You can beat on this thing as hard as you want. And guess what? It will pass the test. And there's only one thing that passes that test. But the world is sitting back and saying, look, we got to find something that's going to fill this gap inside of our hearts. And so this growth of the New Age movement and other spiritual communities that promise to provide a sense of meaning and purpose beyond traditional Christian framework. Well, how do we close this up? And this is, I, I've said enough here this morning. I'm, I'm winding up here. How do we close this all up? The Bible speaks about the last days. And it tells us what's going to happen in the last days. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 9, it says, The coming of the lawless one, that's talking about the Antichrist again. Um, the coming of the Antichrist, we could say, or the beast, will be in accordance with how Satan works, the works of Satan. He'll use all sorts of displays of power through signs and wonders that serve the lie. And all the ways that wickedness deceives those who are perishing, they perish because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Do you guys love the truth? Even if it hurts? How many married people <laughs> love the truth, even if it hurts? Jeff, you liar. <laughs> you know, I saw her raise her hand for you. <laughs> I know how this works. First Timothy also says something interesting. It says, the Spirit clearly says, is any confusion here? It clearly says that in the latter times, some will abandon the faith. You can't lose your salvation. You can leave it. I lose my keys. I am so glad I have an iPhone and an iPad. You want to know why? My iPhone helps me find my iPad, and my iPad helps me find my iPhone. <laughs> you got to have two of them. <laughs> and the problem is in the last days, he says, people are going to make a conscious choice and say, I'm done. And I'm going to create a new Jesus after my liking so I can live in immorality. I can do evil things. I can do wrong. So I'm just going to simply create a new Jesus and say, I love Jesus. Do you love truth? Or is it something that's convenient to your circumstance? Circumstantial ethics. And they'll follow a deceiving spirit. In other words, they'll say, man, God spoke to me. You sure it was the true and the living God? They'll follow a deceiving spirit and things taught by demons. That's what I said at the beginning. Satan has taken them captive in order to do his will. The Bible says that's going to happen in the last days. People that profess to be followers of Christ made a conscious choice, usually over bitterness. They walk away from the faith, and then they begin pursuing God in their own terms, they come into contact with a demon spirit, and he leads them to their own destruction if they don't repent. It's very sad. Second Timothy 3, verse 13, it says, While evildoers and impostors will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. In Matthew 24, Jesus said, Watch out that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name, claiming I am the Messiah, and will deceive many. Jesus goes on to say that, there will be false prophets who will perform great signs and wonders to deceive the people, just like Paul said. And that even the elect, those that have been chosen by God because of their choice of him, will be in danger of being deceived. 
in Matthew 24, 11 to 13. Jesus comes on the scene. He says, listen, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And Paul ends by saying, listen, guys, Christians, brothers and sisters in Christ, 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 5, he says, for you are children of the light. Guys, we're not part of the darkness. We're in the world, but we're not of it. The ship and the sea, everything's great. The sea and the ship, everything's not great. <laughs> You're a ship in the sea. You're children of the light, children of the day. Remember who you are. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. Do you guys get the picture language here? And those who get drunk, get drunk at night, though that's literal. <laughs> but since we belong to the day, that is, we're part of Christ's kingdom, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation, for God has not destined us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, that is, whether we died or not, we might live with him. So the call in the New Testament is for us to keep this ever before our eyes, to remember that we're in the world, but we're not of it, that there's a spiritual conflict going on. Recognize it. Don't become enamored with it. Recognize it, and then set your gaze upon your Lord. Your loved ones that don't know him, listen to their concerns, listen to their questions, take their questions, answer them according to the grace that God gives you. Be humble enough to say, I don't know, but can I figure that out? Can I come back to you later? Give them a reason for the hope that you have. You don't have to know everything to know God. Tell them what you know. And you begin to explain to them with the great hope, not that you can be right and they can be wrong, with the great hope that they would bow their knee and join you in the triumphant parade. And to walk in the light of his revelation is to find no room for despair, but to continue to march through the tribulation and the overwhelming darkness with the song of the coming triumph forever on our lips and the light of the city of our God forever shining before our eyes. God, thank you for your grace. Thank you for the covering that you give. I pray, God, for the power of your spirit that you would speak through the weakened body and the tired body of this man just a mere man, but you are a great king. And I pray that you would be glorified. I pray that nothing that I said here would freak people out, unless, Lord, they need to be. Maybe they need to wake up. But for those that are just living for you and just real innocent in their walk with you, don't let them be afraid. Don't let them be ignorant either. But let them be comforted with the comfort with which we have received. That these things are going to happen on the earth. We wouldn't become enamored by it, partake in it, or overcome by it, but we'd be victors in Jesus. So we pray for your grace, and I pray as we kind of navigate these things over the next few weeks, you give me wisdom how to speak truth into a tremendous growing world of darkness. We praise your name. We ask that you would come, Lord Jesus, come. In Jesus' name, amen.